first question of the today is, what is most confusing to people right now about PACERS? Celeste, do you want to kick us off? Sure. I think there's a lot of aspects that you know are confusing, most notably because, as our topic of today alludes, there's not a lot of guidance in this area. And so I think a good place to start to add clarity is focus on how to set up these documents to have good lifecycle management. So for class three products, they need to be renewed on a yearly basis and class um, class 2A is gonna need to be on every, every two years or as needed. So kind of spanning that like frequency of updates, you wanna focus on how you can set up these reports that you're presenting the information that's requested in MDR required, and then also able to be um, you know, updated quickly. So maybe you set up your tables that every year you can add new data and then shift your old data over a column, you know, that kind of thing. So you're, you're presenting the new data, but then also doing it in a streamlined manner. So I, I'd say like from lifecycle management perspective, that's a big, a big thing um, of just finding clarity and what's going to work um, for the product itself and the manufacturer on the scale. Thanks. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I think also, you know, the MDR lists a number of areas or a number of, um, you know, information that should be included. So I think the, there's questions that come up. Well, if we don't currently do that activity, do we need to create that activity to collect that type of data? Can we just use our normal processes like complaints or vigilance reporting or things like that? And is that sufficient? You know, do we need to create more um, proactive approaches to collect data? You know, a lot of times it depends on the device, you know, a lower class, lower risk device might not, might not need as much as your class three implantable life-saving, you know, device. So I think that's where it can be confusing. And, and I think a lot of times that you, know, you try and have a standard approach for everything, which, you know, really doesn't work as well. So I think it could be confusing. Well, how do we know when we need this versus when we need that? And, you know, a lot of times it comes down to the device and the risks and the information that you have and the history on the market. So there's a, a number of factors that you have to start considering. So it can't be just a one question, you know, one answer. It's, it's really got to be multiple uh, factors that you're looking at for the device when you're considering the, the information that should be included. Um, I think that's another big one. What do you think, Nancy? You're on mute, Nance. First time for everything. <laughs> no. Let's go to John. We'll come back to Nancy. Well, I would maybe want to circle back a little bit about updates because to me, that is an extremely confusing thing. How to handle updates and the time frame of those updates. And and the reason I say that is because often like the stage most companies are at, they've updated their CER. So they've kind of got everything up to snuff and they might even have a PMS plan in place and have never really generated a PCER. So every time we do CERs, most of the time, it's not based on data from a periodic safety update report. Mm -hmm. It's based on an individual, uh, the QMS team giving us the complaint data and all that data as we requested for the time frame. So most of the data that currently we have is cumulative for the last five years or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest next question is people are planning to do their updates to things. How do you handle that update? And I think, Celeste, you might have kind of mentioned like it was a rolling cumulative assessment, meaning only the past five years. But I think oftentimes it's a little confusing. Do you use 
do you summarize the thing from the past update and then any new data, right, from the last year if it's an annual update? And what are the notified bodies most interested in? Because to me, it's like easier from a presentation standpoint to have a cumulative update for the past five years and it's just rolling because it just kind of shows you, but it doesn't really indicate what are the new things and whether or not it's trending similar to before. So how have you guys handled that update frequency? If you even really have gotten into that, you know, cause we are pretty early. Mm -hmm. We, we have, and I think like one area we, so we've done it both ways. The area that I, the way I think is easiest is to maintain the cumulative approach. Um, so just every five years, but then say, to give a report if there were trends just in that new period. So in this, in the newest um, time frame, the trends that were observed, you know, were X and or like in the last time frame, we saw these trends and they resolved in the new time frame. You know, so to kind of from a trending perspective, hone in on the differences of the new uh, reporting period versus the previous um, report, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think I think yeah. just to add to that, we've seen. Oh, I, Nancy, I think we. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's right. I think I'm oh, live back. back, right? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, the one thing I just wanted to add is sometimes you make a major device change, right? So it doesn't make necessarily make sense to continue your trend before and after that major change to your device. So sometimes, or you change your the way you're handling your complaint reporting. You change the the codes that you're using that you're using for triggering and trending. So I think sometimes you have to be a little bit flexible if the company systems or products have changed, and and not necessarily stick to five years for everything. Yep, and we've seen that too, Nancy, where we, you know, can justify like only pulling like two to three years of data because the coding um, did change or maybe the sales data cha um, database was changed so we could only get sales data for complaint rate calculations back a certain amount. Um, so that's exactly how we've worked through that too. Yeah, I think just to expand on your earlier comments, Celeste, I think we looked at it too where we've seen where you have a reporting period and a review period. So maybe your reporting period is, hey, this is the last year, here's the updates, almost like an update section, but here's the re total review period so you can see Here's what changed last year or the two years that we have, but here's kind of our full review where we're going back with more data to get a better understanding. Because, you know, sometimes you see spikes in data from year to year that, you know, aren't indicative of an overall device issue. But, you know, unless you look at a wider range than maybe your update period there the last two years, you know, it's going to seem like there's a more significant issue. But if you factor that over the whole period, it gets easier. So. So can you can you define again what the reporting period versus the review period was? Yeah, so the reporting period might be, you know, we had to do a, you know, you have to do a report every year, for example, for a 2B or a 3 device, but your review period, you're just going to say we're always going to review at least five years cumulative of data. So we're going to report out every year the data that changed, the delta, but then we're going to review back five years so you can see both sides of it when you do that. Yep. Okay. Want to go to the next question? We have like 80, so. Well, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> question two. <laughs> so this one came in in advance. It's a little confusing. Let's see. Should the PSER follow a similar format to the PMCF guidance that was released? I'm not sure how you 
use one to help you with the other. Yeah, um, I think what do you think, Brian? We were, yeah, I was going to say, I think we were looking at it, you know, is there things that we can glean from that guidance, that things that it seems like, you know, what are, what are the, uh, you know, what's the MDCG getting at? And are there things that maybe are similarities that we want to consider when we're writing a piece or right? So the MDCG guidance for, you know, the PMCF plans brought in some of the technical documentation aspects that kind of manufacturing details details about the device that wasn't explicit to pmcf but clearly they wanted that in the document right as part of the guidance so do you want you know you might want to start considering to add some of those details into your pms plan because they are separate they might be separate submitted documents that the notified bodies are going to want to see some of those details and also you know how they're assessing similar devices you know are you considering that assessment across the way you know your similar device is supposed to be consistent throughout your technical documentation so the way that similar devices are being recommended to be assessed as part of pmcf are you having a taking a similar approach in the other areas right so it should be consistent and did you take that approach maybe you wrote your pms plan before you wrote your pmcf plan did you actually assess similar devices looking at their intended use looking at their intended purpose looking at um, you know the claims that that uh, other manufacturers making did you actually do a more in-depth assessment or was it more of just a yeah these these are out there in the market and we should use them so i think there's some information like that um, references are another good example how they call out you know you need to identify specific areas so if there are specific references specific information that you're getting to make sure that you're explicit in those references and, and not just generically um, referencing things in that same way so go well, ahead john well i just think like i have not seen anybody using that front matter information in their PMS plans or PCERs. And I guess maybe I'll ask Nancy because she deals with the overall technical documentation and, and those sorts of things. You know, I feel like there's a lot of desire to have that front matter information like UDI and things like that, like your class. And, and I've even seen people wanting to put that in their protocols for surveys and things like that. So where does it stop where you have to keep repeating the same information? Because the problem is if you change it in one of the documents, then you have it incorrect in all the others. And I think a lot of clients are hesitant to put it and just house it in the technical documentation and maybe the CER, and then everywhere else you just don't, you have a very basic device description or something like that. I don't know, Nancy, what are your thoughts on do you want to use that front matter everywhere? Because I understand why the notified body wants that, because if they pass it off to different reviewers, then they're all, they don't have to go back to the technical documentation, right? They can, they have a standalone document. Yeah, well, given the fact that we've been remediating all these tech docs, right, to be EUMDR compliant, and it is really, really hard to look at all those reports and know what version of the device was I talking about when that was created. It makes me lean towards, I want to include more information up front. I want that background information of what device I'm lurking, what RAV, what is the UDI. Now, the question is, to your point, you don't want to get mismatched between documents. You know, so my preference, right, if, if I could have my vision, I would have a database where all that information is housed, and then I have a report that I just print out of that database. So every time I create a piece, it's up to date, it's current, it's got the same language, the same description, the same information coming out. So I've got that uniformity across it, but I also don't have to worry about that maybe this piece was written to an old version of the device and I didn't know that, or I can't figure that out 12 years from now when I'm trying to go back. 
So Nancy, until that database is made, we um, we use appendix files in the pieces for like all the device SKUs. So maybe you know SKUs are added or removed in a product line or in a tech file. Then that's an easy update just in an appendix um, for the subsequent piecer. Yeah, and I think that's right. That data packet that we've talked about in the past when we're trying to get all these things aligned. You know, it's that data packet of all those SKUs that is going to give you that alignment. So I think what I hear you saying, though, is you, you would lean towards including more device-specific information, but maybe some of the, like, the manufacturing contact details that are more higher system-level details might be better in a, in, an, in a single document that can be referenced? Yeah. So I think having that appendix or maybe it's a cover sheet that has that basic information that doesn't change um, just gives you some structure to the report. You don't have that, even though it feels duplicative and you always run the risk when you duplicate of getting misalignment, it's still, it still think that document then is going to have to stand alone when the notified body reviews it. And so I don't think we can get away from having that background. So would that live in the technical documentation that where would you get that from, you think, that I'm going to use for my front matter information? Is that living in the technical documentation and you pull from that? Yeah, that's where I would propose. That okay. becomes the, the master. Yeah. And same okay, thing guys. with like similar devices. Sorry. The similar devices is know. always something that's like gets, I have never seen it like, I shouldn't say that, but like it usually is not consistent. Like I'll see the CER has one thing listed as similar devices. The periodic, the PMS plan has another idea of what similar is. And I, oftentimes the technical documentation has not been updated yet to list similar devices. And so, because it might be MDD still. So is the source of truth for similar devices, should that really be from the technical documentation too? Or where do you think that comes from? Well, I'm a regulatory person, so I think the tech stack should be that source of truth. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Others might feel differently, but that's where, because if you have an MDR compliant tech stack, you're going to have that information there. Okay, next question, guys. How does the PCER overlap with the CER? For example, how do you align the lit searches to avoid duplicating work or having inconsistent results? Um, John, you want to start? I'm betting you you have an opinion on this one? Well, what I have seen so far is basically the periodic safety update re reports point to the literature searches in the CER. And so it the literature searches are the greatest thing of overlap and really the, like the biggest chunk of work that would overlap with the CER. Now, like I said, I, I haven't seen a whole lot of periodic safety update reports that I've been pulling from to use in the CER, but ideally, you would want to be taking database information that the 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 people who are creating the PMS report or PCER would create complaints, and that information should be pulled from the PCER and be put into the CER just to ensure they're consistent. You might not need to include all the details, but there's certain sections that you would want to include in the CER. I've seen sometimes where people just mention, okay, complaints are analyzed in the PCER. I just don't think that's going to be enough because it just leaves you wanting more. And then the person reviewing has to go to the PCER, which might not be attached. And it just is difficult. Mm -hmm. So at a very minimum, you need to have the, the fundamental information in the CER from the PCER. But the PCER should be, in this case, 
like the source of document for complaints, CAFAs, recalls, uh, database searches, or you could decide database searches might be done by the clinical team. It really depends. But the literature searches are the big thing that I think most of the time, like the post-market teams don't necessarily do literature searches and certainly not to the extent that is included as an analysis of the CER. So I think they need to be speaking to each other where you have a summary of what the literature is for not only your device, but similar devices in the PSER. Um, and that would be pulled from the CR. And I think one of the other challenges that we see people have too is that, you know, what do you do when you maybe have a well-established device that your, you know, time frame for your CER could be different than your time frame for your PSER? You know, so I think some want to take approaches where maybe you have a separate PMS literature search from your CER literature search. Um, I think that can create some challenges, right, when the timing does align or who's doing the searches, how are you updating those searches, how do they interact? Or what happens when you do find new clinical evidence? You know, how do you justify not updating the CER? Could you really go a year or two years not updating a CER if you're finding new clinical evidence? So I think it does create some challenges to separate the two and to not leverage it across. Um, I think there's, you know, benefits and a lot of the, you know, having a separate literature search protocol or something like that, that, you know, maybe you can at least define and follow the same process. And maybe it's a literature search report um, if you are going to separate the two and that, that same literature search process is followed, whether regardless whether or not it's just going in the CER or the CER and the um, PCER, but at least you're following the same process regardless of, of what you're doing. Um, so you know you're going to get consistent results. So John, I don't know. Yeah, I think that most of the time, clients seem to be hesitant to have a separate literature search report outside of their CER. Usually, you have a separate protocol, but not necessarily all the literature and all the documentation and reporting on it is contained within the CER. And I think they just don't like having a bunch of different separate reports, especially because oftentimes what happens is you have the separate literature search report, and then you literally attach it as an appendix, and then you have the same exact duplicate information in the CER. And so it just feels like, why would I have a, the same exact information in two places? Sometimes what I've seen people try doing, I, I prefer that the the schedules align. It just makes the most sense from a logistical standpoint that you just align them because then your literature searches are there, you're, you're kind of reviewing, you're feeding off each other, and then you're signing all the documents at the same time. And in theory, that seems to make the most sense. I've seen some people doing a literature search protocol identifying any of the articles. So when you're doing the literature search, you do your screening, then you have your list of included articles. And then you have the choice, which is a big chunk of it, to actually do some sort of analysis on it and really see if there's anything there. And so you could, if you want to have separate literature searches that are offset from your CERs, you maybe don't do a full analysis, but you say, here's the articles we identified, here's the abstracts, we reviewed them, and there's no clinical risks that are associated with it or something like mm -hmm. that. So it might be an analysis light. And then that's useful for the people doing the CER, because now they know what articles to include and what to do a further analysis on. So I think it benefits both people, and it's not a whole lot of extra work. Um, but you do have to do some sort of analysis on it if you're going to talk about it. It's not just like, we did a lit search and we didn't find it. You know, it has to be more than that, I think. And that's where you run into trouble if you're not updating your CER. Okay, we're going to take a question from the audience. This one says, I am surprised that PCERs are being written already. 
this would imply that devices have been CE marked under MDR and likely on the market for at least a year. Our manufacturer is already compiling them. So that comes back to a question we had planned with, do you, do you submit it with your initial tech doc or not? Celeste, do you want to start this one? Sure. Uh, we've seen both that it be submitted just to um, kind of have alignment with how they are, you know, structuring them without any guidance. There's a little, um, there's a lot of gray areas about the information to include and to what level of detail. And so the strategy is, um, in some cases, to go ahead and create the document and submit. Uh, we've also, you know, have a lot of experience of writing piecers where maybe the intention is not to submit, but just to ensure that the PMS plan can be executed. So, you know, I'm writing how I'm going to analyze and, you know, look at my data and the public and adverse event and recall databases and try and pull all these things together. Sometimes what happens is when you go to do the work, you find out, oh, my complaint coding doesn't match my risk management as much as I would hope. And so, you know, it's hard to tie my trending to probability and severity of occurrence in the hazard analysis. You know, you start, when you start pulling the data from your databases and trying to fill out the piecer, you identify and uncover all these areas that might need remediated and wouldn't have been identified unless, you know, you actually did the work. And so maybe it's not the intention to submit, but just to have a draft internally and demonstrate that, uh, I guess, maybe fine tune the process is a better way to put it. Like, does this PMS plan hold water with how our database and company and everything else is structured? Um, and then we've also seen the approach of having a template and not, you know, executing the, the piecer at all um, until after the first year. But, but I think everyone on the call has a lot of feedback or thoughts in this area too. What are you seeing, Nancy, in your submissions? Yeah, it don't see the same thing. A lot of people not submitting necessarily. We have had some notified bodies ask and then they back off if you push back. Um, but I would say to Celeste's point, you learn so much. I would never go forward planning to do all these a year after and think you're gonna get them all done. Because we're finding, right, sales data is grouped differently than you grouped your piece or, and I can't break out the sales the way I need it, right? All those infrastructure IT and you've got to get marketing support and sales support and the complaints, we find out, oh gosh, a year ago they changed the database and we can't extract the old data. What am I going to do? I only have one year of data and I need five or I feel like I need five because I don't, I can't determine if there's a trend or not. Um, so if in the same thing, the template, you think I, I've written beautiful templates and I go to fill them out and I can't do a diddly squat with it because I have no idea what it means later. <laughs> right. <laughs> but when you have to pull the data and fill out those fields, it, it really becomes real. So do one. If you don't do them all, do one just so that you learn and, and you don't get stuck a year from now in a panic. <laughs> so there's still there are follow on questions to this coming in. There's definitely confusion around the dates. Um, you know, one question is, is um, don't we have to be following the PMS requirements from MDR, you know, starting May 26, 2021? The other one is, is if the device is still under MDD until 2023, is a piece or due in the years leading up to that time? So does anybody want to take that? Brian? Sure. Look like you have it. 
Yeah, so so absolutely the PMS and then the associated PMCF plans are all due May 26, 2021. So the new date of application with the MDR. So those are due regardless of whether you have an MDR device or an MDD device. So with specific devices, so that 2023 date's really going to depend on the device that you have, right? So if you have a class 1R device, the MDR isn't specific as to when you have to create that PCER. So you might not have a PCER for that. Uh, well, you wouldn't have a PCER for the class one device. So say a 2A, 2A and a 2B device, sorry. So 2A and a 2B device, um, you're going to have two years. So from 2021 to 2023, it may depend. So if your cert expires in March of 2023 and you created your PMS plan in May of 2021, you may not have created a PCER yet for that. Um, but for a 2B device or a class three device, one year after you create that PMS plan or within a year, you know, annually, you know, and I think they're relatively, you know, it doesn't have to be the exact date. I think they're, you know, so far uh, and the the relative date within a year from that, you're going to need to have a PCER regardless of whether or not you've submitted uh, an MDR submission on that device or not. So you're going to still need to follow the guidelines because those PMS requirements are in place. So there are requirements to do a PCER annually for a 2B and a 3 device or every two years for a 2A device, those are gonna apply regardless of whether or not you're MDR certified or not. And the notified bodies are gonna be checking that when they come in for their MDD surveillance audits because those do apply in lieu of the corresponding directive. So they're gonna be checking to make sure that you're doing these activities when they come in for those annual surveillance audits, even if you are not yet MDR certified. Okay, good very good so, clarification. Go ahead. So basically, I just wanna make sure I get it straight. If it's a 2B or a 3, then, and they're submitting May 2021, um, they need to have a PCER within like one year, even if their cert doesn't expire until, say, 2023. Yeah, so even if they're not submitting, so whether they're submitting or not in May, they're going to have to have that plan in place by May. And I think the other thing to keep in mind, just to quickly add to that, and then we're getting to time, um, is that do you really want to be doing every single one of your PCERs or, uh, you know, at the same time, if you release every single one of them at the last possible second in May, do you really want to be doing, you know, depending on how many devices you have, 15, 20, 30, 50, 100 PCERs all one year from now? Um, so there's some that are looking to release them ahead of time or to stagger them, maybe do reports early and uh, to, to spread things out a little bit better. Um, to just from an organizational perspective. Okay. Yeah. Thank okay. You. Great. Yeah. Uh, shift and a little bit on. Oh, well, go ahead. Lisa, go ahead, I just want to say the one thing at document I always look at for these things, and I think it kind of outlines what your requirements are through the transition. Is uh, I just looked this up, so this is what is the CMDN transition subgroup FAQ document. It's on MDR transitional uh, provisions, and I don't think Nancy, right? This is not an official sanctioned document. This is just kind of the notified bodies that said this is our answers to common questions about the transition, right? It's the competent authorities. Competent so authority. one step Sorry. above the notified yeah, bodies. So PMB. Yeah. And so I would encourage people to look at that because it does talk about in your transition, if you still have an MDD cert, what your obligations still are. And so I think it's in 120 paragraph three that allows you to still be have an MDD cert past the date of application. It's just that then you have these certain requirements. And I think registration is one of them. You know, you have PMS requirements. So definitely look at that because things are required, even if you're under MDD. 
Okay, next question. Uh, what level of detail is appropriate for complaints? Les, do you want to start? A great question. Okay. Loaded <laughs> question there, Lisa. <laughs> um, I would say there's a lot of different ways to tackle it. Um, one of the biggest things for me is to ensure that complaints are presented like at a detailed enough level that allow compliance for vigilance reporting. So the requirements of vigilance reporting is based on statistically significant increase in frequency um, in the occurrence rate or the severity of um, an event. So it could be you know, something that's causing harm or has the potential mm -hmm. to cause harm. So a lot of times we work with clients that have their trending um, set up at the at the complaint level for the entire product. So just looking at number of complaints for the product. If you're doing that, it doesn't really help you with that vigilance requirement. And so you really have to break it down and look at individual complaint reasons and then map that back to the probability of occurrence and severity um, in the hazard analysis of the risk management file. So I think like you have to present enough detail that you're able to make that connection. Um, we've seen notified bodies ask for tables, um, looking at complaints by marketing region, complaints by severity level, um, complaints by year or even quarter, depending on you know the number of complaints and how frequent how frequently like the trending is occurring. So I, I think like it's going to have to be what makes sense for the product and you know the man, the system that the manufacturer has but consider different ways of breaking it down so maybe it makes sense to look at by severity level and then by marketing region um, also by like complaint rate per million to be able to tie back to risk management so those are kind of some high level things i was gonna say if i could just quickly add to that i think you want to give enough information to where you could uh an, an auditor the robotic could actually understand what's happening with the device right so What's not going to be sufficient is just saying, hey, here's the total number of complaints for this device, right? We had 50 complaints in 2021 or 2019 and 25 in 2020. That, that's not going to be enough detail to provide. So you're going to want to understand maybe some of the main um, issues that are going on with those devices, whether you categorize your complaints all the way down to the hazard level or if you're just you know, understanding kind of the categories and then breaking that down so that you could understand like what, what are the actual issues that are occurring with the device to allow me enough information to make an assessment of what what is actually happening in the field, not just, yeah, we get complaints and here's the rough quantity of each um, yep. per device. That's a great point, Brian, because by doing that, you'll be able to like tie it back to the benefit risk, which is the whole like point and probably what the auditor's looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the like the if you there's BSI has an MDR uh, technical documentation readiness um, review document. I forget the exact title, but if you just Google that, and it talks about what you should include in your submission for complaints. And one thing that seems to be a little bit confusing, I don't think a lot of people always do. You need to have complaints by year, and ideally you should probably go back about three to five years. And so, uh, and then they have requested by, as Celeste mentioned, by region. 
And so I often find it not to be very helpful though, to be honest, when people list like every country and the complaints or sales by that specific country, um, I always find it a little bit more valuable just having like, here's the EU and here's the rest of the world. Um, I, but I have seen them kind of request that. And I think it's easier to generate reports with just the countries. And I think that's why people do that. Um, but I think the overall thing, like, like Brian said, if you just say we had six complaints over the last 15 years and we have this many sales, that's not enough detail for sure. And, but just spitting out all your complaints that you had is also, it's more detailed, but it's not relevant. And so you have to have some sort of analysis to help them understand what's going on and what's the important things. And I've even seen some of the notified body ask, hey, give me your top five or 10 complaints and just put those in your tables. You know, So you don't have to include all 2000 of them, at least in the CER, maybe in the PCER, you might analyze them, but you wanna focus on the most important issues. Okay, thanks guys. Um, going back to the previous question, John, you had referenced a document that someone asked if you could repeat it. Maybe if you could just put it in the chat for everyone. Um, and then here's a question from the audience. What happens if your class 2A device under the MDD is upclassified to a 2B under the MDR? Can you continue to do a two-year PCER until you are MDR certified? Nancy. <laughs> She's smiling. She's got yeah, the. Answer. I would. I would say no. Right. You, you're still going to sell it under the directive until your cert expires, but the um, post-market surveillance requirements kick in for your upclass device next May, and so then I would be following that schedule definitely mm -hmm. for that device. Okay. Okay. Next question. Um, the MDR talks about having simple indicators and threshold values to be used to reassess the risk management information or documentation. What is that supposed to mean to companies? Brian, you wanna start Yeah, this? no, that's, that's tough. I think it, it depends on how you wanna do it. What we're seeing with those is that you need to have, you know, you're gonna be getting data from post-market, right? You're gonna be getting complaints, you're gonna be getting, having vigilance reports, you're gonna be getting all of this information. So what they want to do do or to know is similar to what Celeste talked about earlier is you need to get a way to relate that so we have a, an occurrence or hopefully you have an occurrence in your risk management documentation um, or a severity as part of that that's got um, at least from an occurrence perspective some numerical value or something uh, some way of quantifying that so you're going to need to be able to tie what's happening in post-market to that risk management from uh, an occurrence perspective so those suitable indicators and thresholds might be based on historical data that you have. You know, we know that our, our complaint rates, right? So how many you know complaints we get per um, number of units sold. We know that for historically for a device that's been on the market, we know that it historically occurs at this rate. And these are the thresholds that we're going to set for action for when it changes our risk benefit discussion. So this is how we relate those rates to our risk management documentation. And a lot of times it's aligning those occurrence rates to make sure that what we assessed in our risk management occurrence rates actually match up to what we're seeing in the post-market space, right? I don't want to say that, you know, this serious issue happens one in a thousand times, but when I get and look at my actual data, it's happening one in a hundred times, right? Because you have no way to reconcile those two. So um, often we're seeing people go back to their risk management documentation and say, hey, these are my thresholds. So my indicators are complaint rates, our vigilance reports, the severity of those reports, and then I'm going to tie that back to my risk management documents and the occurrence rates that I said. So I have a, maybe a five-point scale, and one means 
one in a million and five means one in 10 or vice versa, however you want to do it, but you're actually using those as your threshold value. So you use your indicators, what's coming from uh, the post market. So it's going to be a rate of complaints maybe, or it's going to be, you know, you could still do complaints mm-hmm. if you have something like that, um, that you maybe you can't get to a rate. It's an estimated rate or things like that. But those are that's what they're really getting at is how are you taking that post market data and relating it to what you've set up in your risk management. So um, I don't know if others have different experience with that. No, well, I think that's the same. One of the challenges I see, right, is that rate that you identify in your risk management, the rate you're seeing in complaints, and then the rate you're taking from the CER in your clinical data can be very different because the reporting is different, right? In the clinical study, you were monitoring everybody for that effect. And when it gets into the complaints, maybe it's not severe enough. Nobody reports it. Um, so you get those different rates and how do you reconcile those items across all three of those avenues. It's been a, a challenge for some people. Yeah, okay, I, we... I haven't seen a whole lot of people reconciling it, to be honest. Like, not that they, it's just they do more of a general reconciliation, meaning they look and they say, do we have this risk present? And then they do their trending to see if it's gone up or down. And so if it triggers an adverse trend, then you're concerned about it. But if it stays stable, you, you, you're you not necessarily concerned. And yes, we've identified in the risk management and it's still acceptable. That's what I've seen most common. I'm not common. That, I'm not saying that's like the best way to do it, but that seems to be what I've seen. I've also seen people having issues with either new devices demonstrating what their rates should be because you have no his, history. And it might be completely different from what you've had before. So demonstrating that, yes, this complaint rate's acceptable when you have no idea what really should be acceptable. Um, and I've seen notified bodies questioning that. Even if it's low, they say, give us a justification for why it's low. And I still haven't really seen a satisfying answer to that question other than you know, you look at other devices and say, this is what we'd expect. Uh, and other times I've seen people with capital equipment struggling to get a complaint rate because it always looks really bad especially if they don't necessarily have good sales data on their disposables or it can be used with other disposables. And so I've seen complaint rates up to 20%, which looks terrible, but that does, that's just based on their sales of their main machine, not the actual number of procedures. So have you seen people, Brian, like how do they handle procedure estimates? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly what they go to is the procedure estimates they start to go to. And we know that this machine um, you know, I've seen some that I've actually started trying to build that into future versions of the machine where it tracks that and can report those. So thinking forward thinking. Um, but in other cases, they've been more of estimates. They've gone to literature or to even like market reports um, for, hey, there's this many procedures that are done. We estimate that our market share is 20% of this procedure. So that's how we're going to get to these um, volumes and is, is uh, you know, trying to lay out a rational, reasonable approach to how you determine how often that's going to be used. Um, to your point, especially when there's other disposables that can be used with it, um, I think it's a lot simpler if it's it's our proprietary device and only our devices can be used on it. Um, but yeah, when you complicate it with other devices, um, I see more of those kind of market-related um, estimates. Mm-hmm. Well, mul- multiplying that market estimate by an install base per month or something. Yep, exactly. Hey guys, we are out of time. I think we will need to schedule a part two of this one because we still had a lot of questions to ask and um, this was just fantastic information. So we'll definitely do that.